if you would open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4, we're going to be looking at verses 2 to 9. Philippians 4, verses 2 to 9. And I'd ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, so I ask you also, true companion, help these women who've labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, Whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. And you can be seated as we pray. Father, each one of us needs to hear your word this morning for different reasons, because of different circumstances, but with the same word and the same voice. So may your Holy Spirit work now in our hearts so that we won't just be uh, people who hear the word, but be doers of the word. So help us by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. How often uh, do you go to a church's website and click around just to learn a little bit about the church? Because it's my job, or because of my job, it's something I do fairly often. And some church websites have an interesting tab that shares the church's history. Well, if the church at Philippi had a website, and if they had a church history tab, you'd click on it and it would take you to Acts chapter 16. And there you would learn that the Philippian church began at a woman's prayer meeting. The meeting took place at a Saturday down by the river. And a missionary named Paul had heard about the prayer meeting and came. And he was given the opportunity to speak. And he shared with the women the good news from the scriptures about Jesus being the Christ. One of the women at that prayer meeting was a businesswoman named Lydia. And she embraced the gospel along with her whole household. She insisted on becoming a patroness of the church. So it ended up meeting in her home. And we even learned that as Paul said his farewells to Philippi, he made a point to say goodbye to Lydia before he left the city. Lydia, Sidia, no, city. But Lydia wasn't the only woman who'd given herself to the gospel at the Philippian church. Much like in our church, there was a group of women who were tireless 
gospel workers, vital to the church's work. And among them were two women named Yodia and Syntyche, who Paul calls fellow workers and side-by-side gospel partners. Perhaps they were both part of that original prayer meeting that birthed the church. In any case, a division had arisen between these two women. And it's addressed in verses 2 and 3 where he says, I entreat or beg Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, some commentators view verses 2 and 3 as kind of a, uh, almost an aside, like there's one little thing I need to address here, let me just tack this on. But there are actually all sorts of clues that the division between these two women was at the core of why Paul wrote Philippians. For example, the word we see agree in verse 2 is the exact same word in Greek that's used in chapter 2, verse 2, when he pleads with the Philippians to be of the same mind and of one mind. He uses the same word again in chapter 2, verse 5, when the Philippians are told to have the mind of Christ. And then again in chapter 3, verse 15, when Paul tells the Philippians, let those who are mature think this way. So what you see is the plea of verse 2, what Paul is begging for, has actually been the consistent plea throughout the whole letter. But there's more. Crammed into these two verses are the fellowship language of the book. So the phrase, labored side by side from verse 3, mirrors the exact same phrase in chapter 1, verse 27. And that word, it's one word in Greek, is only used two times in all of Paul's writings here and in 127. Moreover, the phrase fellow workers from verse 3 is the same word used to commend Epaphroditus in 2.25. So you can see this fellowship language that Paul has been using throughout the book of Philippians gets packed into these two verses, making clear that the themes of the letter are closely tied to this struggle he's heard of between Yodia and Syntyche. Now when Paul hears of these two trusted gospel workers who are so at odds, it's deeply troubling to him. So Paul begs them, as we saw, to agree in the Lord. The NIV and the King James Version translate it, be of the same mind. See, he's not asking them to just patch over their differences He's asking them both to embrace the same down-then-up mindset that characterizes Christians and should lead to our unity. It's interesting, he doesn't just ask them to work it through on their own. He asks a true companion to come alongside and help them. Now that could have been Lydia, maybe it was Epaphroditus. We're actually not supposed to know. But we are supposed to know that sometimes we need another more mature believer to help us work through a conflict. I should make a comment about the the division. We don't know exactly the nature of it, but it certainly wasn't related to primary gospel teaching or living 
Because consistently, God deals with those things directly and boldly in the New Testament. So this was a tertiary matter, whatever it was. But it's left vague. And I think that's intentional. Because the chances are, most of us in this room and most of you who are listening online have at some point or even now feel some level of division with a fellow Christian. And God wants to give us counsel on how to handle such division. Now, verses 2 and 3 have given us a hint as to the path forward to handling this by linking to the themes that are found in the rest of Philippians. But Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on to spell out in very clear and specific detail how to cultivate peace. Very accessible steps. That's what verses 4 to 9 are doing. And just to show that, if you look in verse 7, you see this reference to the peace of God. And then again in verse 9, the God of peace being with you. The outcome of 4 to 7 is peace. The outcome of 8 and 9 is peace. Now you might be inclined to read peace in these verses as a kind of inner tranquility. Want to feel peace in your soul? Follow these steps. But actually, peace in the Bible is typically peace between people. It's not usually the opposite of stress. It's usually the opposite of strife or division or quarreling. Now, I don't want to overstate it because biblically, peace with God does lead to a peace in our souls, which leads to peace with our brothers. There is an interconnected there. But when both verse 7 and verse 9 mention peace, right on the heels of a critical conflict within the church, we need to see that Paul's primary concern here is for peace between Christians. All that to say, the the 12 specific steps of verses 4 to 9 aren't random commands. They are Paul's 12-step program before they were popular for peace amidst conflict. So what we're going to do is just run quickly through each step. Now the first four steps come in a cluster in verses 4 to 7. And the first is this. First step, step number one, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Now as you've been tracking along, you know that that's a command that's repeated throughout Philippians. But it's not just a commitment to a a cheery disposition. The reality is that every one of us rejoices in something. Perhaps we rejoice in getting our own way or seeing our kids succeed or spending time with someone we care about. But Paul is saying there's a far better way to rejoice, to rejoice in our Lord, Jesus. So in the face of intense interpersonal struggle, we need to discipline ourselves to deliberately rejoice in the Lord. You can imagine I'm weary, worn out from a long day. We try and find some rest and joy in the game that's finally on TV again. Or in a good book. Or maybe in a Netflix series. Now none of those are wrong things to do. But 
Do I take time to be with God and to rejoice in Him? This is so important that Paul puts it first on the list and he says it twice. The first step towards being a person of peace is to truly rejoice in the Lord regularly. Step number two, be reasonable. Be reasonable. This is an incredible word and it can be difficult to translate. Other translations go with have a gentle spirit or show moderation or be considerate. The idea here is just kind of a a willingness to yield. The ability to listen and give the other side the benefit of the doubt. The ability to adjust our plan and our way of thinking in light of what we hear from someone else. Be reasonable. Be willing to yield. Step number three, don't be anxious. Now, when we get anxious and stressed, we tend to be a bit more irritable and prickly. Our kids know that, don't they? When mom or dad's stressed, stay away, they're kind of... In those times, a small relational hiccup can seem enormous and insurmountable. Now you can ask, is this a case of the chicken and the egg? Does stress lead to strife? Or does strife lead to stress? Obviously, the answer is both. But the point is that we need to be able to deal with our anxiety if we're going to be people of peace. And we're given a clue as to how to do that at the end of verse 5. It says, the Lord is at hand. That's just a shorthand for everything we just saw from chapter 3. In other words, Paul's saying, remember everything we learned from chapter 3. Remember this world isn't the real thing. It's just part of the necessary startup sequence that leads to the ultimate eternal world. The nearness of Jesus' return means all these troubles will be made right. So that's one key to avoiding anxieties, remembering the Lord's at hand. But the other, I've gone ahead and made its own step because it's its own command, and that is pray with thanksgiving. So that's step number four, pray with thanksgiving. We need to be able to offload our worries onto God. Sometimes I consciously do that, and I'm a visual person, so I almost imagine the the, the weight I'm bearing on my shoulders and consciously taking those burdens off and putting them on God's. It might be good even to itemize the specific things that are weighing us down. Name them. And then specifically bring them to God. In my preparation to preach, I came across this delightful little poem that captures the point so well. It goes like this. Said the robin to the sparrow... I should really like to know why these anxious human beings rush about and worry so. Said the sparrow to the robin, Friend, I think that it must be that they have no heavenly father such as cares for you and me. So we, we should bring our burdens 
to a heavenly Father who cares for us. But our prayers aren't just a a list of, here's what I need help with, God. It's prayer with thanksgiving. Our prayer should be bathed in thanksgiving. I had a pastor friend who passed away a few years ago, leaving behind a widow and three girls. And the widow told me how she and her daughters um, would go out of their way and train themselves to look for examples of God's goodness and kindness and care throughout the day. She said, once you start looking for it, it's all around. You just have to have eyes open to see it. When we are anxious, we need these kinds of eyes. We need eyes that see all the good that God is doing and then consciously thank Him for that. Our desperate pleas should be paired with deep thanksgiving so that our Heavenly Father who cares for us more than sparrows, can be the one we are walking with through our trials. That's the first cluster of four. And look at the result in verse 7. The unique peace, the peace that, beyond understanding peace, that belongs to God alone, comes to guard or garrison our collective hearts and minds as a Christian community. Where anxiety and strife were once the norm, instead peace and harmony will be the result. Well then in verses 8 to 9, Paul resumes his 12-step plan with a second cluster of steps. Eight things we are to think about. So, step number five, think on what's true. Think on what's true. Proverbs is replete with warnings about how our words can lead to division. For example, Proverbs 26.20 says, Without wood, a fire goes out. Without a gossip, a quarrel goes down. So it's important for us not to deal in half-truths and speculations. Interestingly, Paul is not like Proverbs in that he's not, he's not primarily concerned with our words. He's more concerned with our thoughts. When I'm in the midst of conflict, it's easy for me, especially uh, when I have some downtime, maybe when I'm lying in bed at night, to try and piece together pieces, bits of evidence and, and, and see, oh, maybe they fit together like this, and I start speculating, and I, and I presume what I don't know to be true. But that's not the way of peace. We must think on only what we know to be true. And then step six is to think on what's honorable. Think on what's honorable. According to 1 Corinthians 13, Christian love believes all things. So when we are at odds with someone, we must be committed to fixing our minds on what's noble or or honorable within that person. It's so easy to lock on to their failings. But Paul says we should lock on to what's honorable. Which leads to step seven, which is to think on what's just. 
Now, kids, you might be noticing there's 12 steps, and I've been using my fingers. And if you're really thinking ahead, you go, okay, he gets to 10. What's he going to do when it comes to 11 and 12? So you have to wait. I got a solution for that. It doesn't involve taking off my shoes. So you have to wait to see what, what's there. But step seven, think on what's just. Now, I'll tell you what this isn't doing. This isn't telling us to give voice to that inner child. That's not fair. This isn't a call to make sure we are treated fairly. Instead, it's a call to live aware that we stand before a God of justice. And so no false witnesses, no double standards, no no straining out the speck in our brother's eye when there is a log in our own. Think in a just way. Step eight, think on what's pure. Think on what's pure. There's actually another key passage in the Bible on how to be a person of peace, and it's James chapter 3, verses 17 to 18. So you guys just look there real quick. It's amazing how similar that passage is to this passage. You guys will get there before me. James chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So when James describes the wisdom that leads to peace, the first word he uses is Pure, same word. In other words, the wisdom that brings peace is not diluted by worldly wisdom. It allows God and God alone to shape it. So we can't let worldly wisdom drive us. We need to be driven by the wisdom of God who gives us passages like Philippians 4 and James 3. So here's my trick, kids. I told you I've got a plan. I'm taking steps 9 through 12 and lumping them all together. That way I don't have to do my hand signals. It's also because they're all saying something very similar. So step 9, think on what's lovely. Step 10, think on what's commendable. Step 11, think on what's excellent. Step 12, think on what's praiseworthy. Now all four of those commands are calling on us to rid ourselves of a critical, fault-finding spirit. To consciously choose to think on what is lovely and good and worthy of praise. You see, in in conflict, our minds can become these kind of vicious merry-go-rounds. We get locked in on that wrong that's done to us, a perceived injustice, the flaws or foibles of our opponent, and that lures us in, and once we're on, it just goes and goes. We can barely get off. But God has a better way. When that Christian adversary is haunting our mind with all his or her flaws... We need to discipline ourselves to think instead on what is lovely and excellent. 
Now, this is true in two different pairings. First, it's true both reactively and proactively. And second, it's true both generally and people specific to people. So these are commands that shape how we react to conflict. Do we allow that vicious merry-go-round? Or do we instead set aside time to consider every aspect of our opponent that is honorable and lovely and commendable and excellent and praiseworthy? Well, we need to do the latter if we're not. And then we need to discipline our minds to dwell there instead of on the merry-go-round. That will lead to peace. That's, that's reactively. But those... But at the same time, people whose minds are proactively filled with what's honorable and lovely and commendable and excellent and praiseworthy, those people are peacemakers too. In other words, you don't have to wait for a conflict to start thinking the right way. The people who are thinking like this throughout life are peacemakers. They're not the rabble-rousers. They're not the ones who you end up needing to beg, agree in the Lord. So these commands are helpful in both how we react, but also how we proactively avoid conflict. And I also said these, true, these commands are true both generally and then specific to people. So these commands give a general way we should be looking at God's world. Remember the, the, widow's, uh, the pastor's wife. We should fix our minds on all that's lovely and good in God's world, which will fuel our thanksgiving and our rejoicing in the Lord. But even as it's something we should be doing generally, it should also be true of specific people. Whether we're at odds with them or not, it's how we as Christians should regard one another. We should train our minds to linger over things in them that are commendable, lovely, and praiseworthy. That is what God is calling us to do in steps 9, 10, 11, and 12. And that completes the list. Now you'll see there in verse 9, Paul concludes by reminding them that he's tried to live these very principles out before them. In other words, if you need a flesh and blood example of this kind of living, look to Paul. See what he says? What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And what will be the result? The God of peace will be with you. Again, peace. In verse 7, it was the peace of God. Now in verse 9, it's the God of peace. Either way, peace is the byproduct. Paul's 12-step program leads to peace. Of course, there's some danger in how I've worded this, right? 12-step program can feel a little bit like self-help. If I just take these steps, there's a mechanical way in which, voila, something magical happens. So I'll just, just say, this passage isn't the whole of Paul's letter. It's simply the culmination of it. And the argument in Philippians goes something like this. If we really grasp what Jesus has done for us, And if as a result we really come to have a gospel mindset, then we'll be peacemakers. What I'm saying is we we can't follow the 12 steps 
unless we're being transformed by Jesus and His gospel. Now, speaking of Jesus, you guys remember what he said about peacemakers in his most famous sermon in the introduction? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. I suppose the question God has before us this morning then is, will we be peacemakers or not? Will you join me as I close in prayer? Father, you know the situation of everyone who's watching online right now, every one of us in this room, and all of us, including me, have reasons that we need to hear your word this morning. So do your business with us. We don't want to let these words fall to the ground and be wasted. So work in us and make us a people for your own possession, zealous for good works, who are people of peace, children of God. Pray in Christ's name. Amen.